how does radio inform, educate and entertain? Over a century, these three pillars have underpinned all that radio is and does. And it's the theme for this year's World Radio Day. In this episode, we're going to look at each pillar one by one. The different ways radio, both public and private, continues to inform. There's a heavy reliance on our radio stations to verify information. And that's been the case for quite a bit. I mean, social media makes that fairly relevant now. Educate. All our uh, languages are endangered. That means that it is very crucial to motivate, especially the young, younger generation, to use their language. And entertain. It's really important for myself and for our team to be thinking about the impact we've always had on young people feeling like they're part of something bigger than themselves and they've got a place to express themselves. I'm Harry Locke and from the Public Media Alliance, this is Media Uncovered. Before we get into the three pillars, let's have a look at where radio is today with the help of three experts. I'm Sonia Gill, the Secretary General of the Caribbean Broadcasting Union. Edita Kudlanchova, and I'm the head of radio at the EBU, which is the European Broadcasting Union. I'm Christian Porter, I'm the CEO of the Public Media Alliance. What are the challenges facing radio today? What are the opportunities? And which networks are doing things differently? Every country that began the independence journey, began with an anthem, a flag, and a national broadcaster. And the desire was to build national identity through broadcasting. Radio was critical to that, to helping people understand themselves. I still consider radio to be among the most powerful mediums for good. Its reach and affordability means that the ability for outlets to inform, educate, and entertain is still unparalleled. It's a storyteller, it's a a lifesaver, it's a companion in the darkest of nights. We are easily able to assume that radio will be there for us in times of crisis, whether man-made or natural. In vulnerable areas of the world like the Caribbean, the role of radio is central to our survival as a region. Radio has always been the most trusted source of any information and especially the news information. We see that in all the measurements and indexes over years. But I'm sometimes afraid that when we move more and more to screens and online environment, radio could even disappear without us noticing it. The squeeze on funding as advertisers move online to the pressures of fragmenting audiences, maintaining prominence, and the sheer pace of digital transformation, which is leaving so many radio stations struggling to keep up. The challenge is not in its popularity, but in being able to balance the line of public service with survival and being able to have enough resources to innovate. The online space and the digital possibilities that we have today provide so much that you can really focus on your communities. You can target minorities very well. You can do whatever you want, basically, how you promote your content, how you produce your content. You can reach out to people who are at the other side of the world with a very simple program. Sometimes the best innovations or evolutions are about going back to basics, finding new ways to reach local audiences, such as Swedish Radio's Touring Studio or SBS Australia's Multilingual Services for Refugee and Migrant Communities. 
Elsewhere, uh, the BBC and other international public broadcasters are still ensuring that older tech is fit for the future to ensure that audiences in conflict and crisis zones, such as Ukraine and Gaza, have access to vital sources of accurate and reliable news and information. So I think radio in its current form certainly has life in it, yeah. But let's return to the theme for this year's World Radio Day, a century of informing, educating and entertaining. They're the cornerstones, not just of radio, but of public service media generally, first established by Lord Reith back when the BBC was founded. And back then it was just a radio station. Although the times have now changed and public media is now much more than radio, radio still plays an important role in society, and those principles still stand. The ways it meets them, however, are changing. And nowhere is this more evident than in youth radio, where the mission to entertain is imperative. My name is Lockie Makara. I'm the head of Triple J, Double J and ABC Country. We're 50 next year, actually, which is a tricky age for a youth broadcaster. <laughs> yeah, we, I guess we were born with a spirit of rebellion, really. Like we, it was 75 and I think Triple J wanted to be something different to what was on air. You know, over the years, I think it took some time to become a genuine national broadcaster. That happened more in the 80s. You know, you start to see at that point and certainly working in regional Australia myself, years after transmitters were installed, people would still talk about Triple J and the impact before and after the transmitter. You know, they sort of spoke in this incredible way about the kids in town, whether they were misfits or felt cut off or bored or ostracised, whatever it might be, almost overnight feeling like they had a, a community and maybe they felt like they weren't so weird at all or, you know, other people like the Saints or Iggy Pop or whatever it might be. So... Um, Triple J was their home. It was their. It, it was where they found sort of that community. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and I think it's really important for me to constantly remind myself of that. I mean, obviously, as you know, and the role of a youth broadcaster, even the term broadcasting, has has evolved so much, and it's really important for myself and for our team to be thinking about these sorts of stories about the impact we've always had on young people feeling like they're part of something bigger than themselves and they've got a place to express themselves. A big part of what we do is entertaining. We still have music as really a main output, particularly backing in Australian music. We pay about 60% Australian music, but we also have a duty to inform and educate. And we have an award-winning current affairs team called Hack. We've got an award-winning podcast, a sex and relationships podcast that I won't mention any of the topics they cover on your podcast, Harry, but um, <laughs> they're called The Hookup. I definitely think it's worth seeking out. We're strictly safe for work. This very podcast, safe for work. So, okay, yeah, okay. Very good. Yeah. Um, but I, I think those those two things, especially, are crucial parts of us helping young people make sense of their world and, and I guess their place in it. What sort of challenges are you facing? Do, do you think are sort of the, the biggest on your radar at the moment when it comes to maintaining and capturing new audiences and just making sure that you're that... That, that, that you continue being the Triple J that people know and love, I suppose? I think a lot of them are probably pretty upfront and felt worldwide, particularly in youth radio. There's a job to be done to maintain a linear audience, and that's quite fun because we've got a big audience listening to us on the radio every week. For our five capital city survey, it's on average about 2 million a week, and then you count in the regionals and it's maybe 3 million how do we keep serving an audience on radio, but also know that the opportunity, I think, to grow a young audience, particularly a diverse audience that reflects what modern Australia looks like, 
is often going to come on digital channels. That's the balance at the moment. You've only got a certain amount of resources to tackle those two areas. I think as well, and perhaps this is a bit more unique to Triple J, we're outliers in a way of how much support we give to Australian artists. And I say that as someone that's worked in a lot of different parts of the media industry and certainly worked overseas and seen how much more widespread support UK artists have on commercial radio, say, compared to Australian artists here. So that's something that's going to continue to be a challenge and I would love for us to be attacking that as a collective. We want to be a place where often we are the first people to be breaking artists, giving them a platform to reach more audiences locally and overseas. But longer term, how can we help artists build that fandom, that genuine fandom, so that there's longevity in their creative pursuit around music? How, how is the way then, and you, you, know, you, you talk about your role in, in supporting artists, how has that changed given the, the, the changing landscape and the changing ways in which young people particularly consume media? Yeah, it's, I mean, we started Unearthed. So Unearthed is our, our platform discovering independent Australian artists. When that first started, it was, you know, send your CD into the station. Everyone would sit around a table and, and listen. And then, then in, I think it was the mid-2006, Unearthed launches a website which again was quite ahead of its time. Having a platform like that for artists to upload their music is crucial. And again, have that pipeline through to Triple J, then onto Double J, and then other stations and, and parts of the media landscape in Australia. But I think it's also about how we've adapted our content making processes to make sure that when we're covering music, when we're working with artists, we're always thinking about how we're meeting the actual demands of our audience. If I take an example, we have a segment called Like Aversion and that started as a radio product. It was a band coming onto The Breakfast Show, playing an original in a cover. That still happens, but nowadays it's far more of a digital first product. We've almost got 2 million subscribers on YouTube and there's a big international audience. So two weeks ago, we had a local band called Royal Lotus. They covered Sophie Ellis-Bexter's Murder on the Dance Floor, which... If you've seen Saltburn, it is a, a key part of that film. I won't give anything away, Harry, if you haven't seen that. I haven't, but having um, heard things, but, I don't necessarily know if I am going to either. <laughs> but I did see this cover. I should say I saw this cover come up on my YouTube right, as well. Okay. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, there's an example of, of sort of us being able to give a platform to an emerging Australian artist that doesn't yet have a huge following, particularly overseas, and it's done what, 2 million on YouTube in two weeks. It's up to almost 4 million streams on Spotify. In a short amount of time, starting to change the trajectory of that band, they sold, I think, a 1,000 tickets for a tour within 48 hours of that Like A Version going out in the world. So those are really exciting areas for us because that's public media content, first and foremost, but it's having real genuine cultural impact is any genre of radio more affected by the ways in which audiences consume media, consume content, than youth radio? And when providing that audience with entertaining content is a huge part of your remit, what is the balance between continuing your existing linear services and investing in new forms of content? I think I'm constantly going to be led by what our audience expects of us. And I think that means that a lot of our pursuits, particularly putting more resource into digital, into podcasts is led by audience demand. So 
we always want to be a place that can take a punt, can take creative risks. We have an incredible team of super intelligent, extremely creative people that I want to back in to come up with the next Hottest 100 or come up with the next Like A Version. And it's not a straight answer for you because I'm not sure if there is one, but ultimately you have to keep fronting up and finding where the audience is and delivering for them. And I think there's always going to be an evolution that's a part of what youth broadcasters stand for, like what Triple J was and what Radio 1 was 50 years ago is so different to what we are now. But there's no denying the impact and the reach that these youth public platforms still provide. That's because there's always been a willingness to evolve and put the audience at the front of centre of absolutely everything that we do. That message of flexibility, having your ear to the ground, seeing where audiences are and where they're going, is imperative if radio is to remain relevant and accessible. From Australia to Norway, where the indigenous arm of the public broadcaster, NRK, is also experimenting and doing things differently to educate both current and new audiences. My name is Johan Eilokalsta and I'm the director of NRK uh, Sami. Uh, NRK Sami has, has a special responsibility for the Sami population. It's the indigenous people of Norway, Sweden, Finland, and we even uh, exist on the Kola Peninsula in northwestern Russia. We are a minority in, in all the countries that we inhabit, and uh, we have nine separate languages. All of them are endangered. Hence, we have a special responsibility to strengthen those uh, languages, uh, but also to play the public service, uh, the broadcaster services in other respects, and giving news, giving entertainment, the content that the rest of the population, the majority would expect to, to the minority. And 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 okay, Sapmi, I mean, has a esteemed history, and uh, I think I'm right in saying is the oldest of the Sami public service broadcasters. Hmm, that's true. The first uh, Sami broadcast was broadcasted in 1946. I, I have often reflected that we started in 1946, just one year after World War Two. Uh, the whole parts of the northern Norway were were uh, in in ruins. Uh, and we were in the midst of uh, a very harsh assimilation process. Given those uh, backgrounds, it's, it's quite amazing that people chose to use their very limited uh, resources to set up a broadcasting uh, offering. But, but that, that tells me something about the, the importance of having, uh, having media in your own language so that the language can exist, I believe. And we have been told that in 1946, whole villages gathered around the radio apparatus to, to hear their own language broadcasted. So that's quite amazing. What, what do you think the role of public service media is when it comes to education and educating audiences? All our uh, languages are endangered. Uh, some of the, some of our languages are quite small. The South and Lula Sami languages, they are only have uh, 500 uh, speakers left. That means that it is very crucial to motivate, uh, especially the young younger generation, to use their language. One of maybe the, the most important things that we do is is to provide modern programs that display 
those small languages in in a, in a modern and a cool and entertaining way that attracts young Samis to uh, give their time to those. Because well, you, you have to recognize that that young Samis are like people with non-Sami backgrounds. They they can choose from whatever they would like. They they speak English fluently. They speak Norwegian fluently, and and we compete against those. So it's really important that that we give them content that is world-class content in 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 sami but is there an appetite for it actually yes uh, yes we we receive very much positive feedback just lately we have produced two podcasts for for young south sami and and lula sami speakers Uh, the south sami version is called havi produced by two sami women in in their 20s and they talk about all kinds of uh, taboos Uh, they talk about sex they talk about psychological uh, health Uh, they talk about all kind of uh, taboos that I believe that that uh, people might have not been used to talk about in in, in official terms they, they bring it to podcast format and they actually uh, the the first episodes had over 600 uh, unique uh, listeners and that might sound like a low number but you ha- have to bear in mind that uh, the language only has uh, we believe it only has uh, 500 speakers left so so it's kind of an over achievement but we believe that um, not only the the uh, Fluent speakers have listened into the the podcast, but we people also use it to actually learn the South Sami language. But I suppose there's almost a dual level of education there, which is it's not just about the that the, there's the language element which you've spoken of as as being so important to LRK Sami, but then there's also the actual content, actually what they're speaking about, and actually it's a really important podcast. It sounds like in terms of the the, the subjects and the issues that it deals with. Exactly, exactly, and and. Well, our, our aim has been to make this a podcast that people talk about. So, so in in order to join the conversation, you need to go through the uh, the podcast and and understand what is it's talked about. What are the challenges you're facing when it comes to the the, the mission that you have? Well, the the main challenge for us is is to uh, to attract talent. We we have a pool of well, take. Uh, uh, South Sami as, as an example, when you have 500 speakers, you have a limited pool of, of uh, talent to take from. So we need to attract those talents and, and uh, give them as kind of the tools to become superstars within their own communities. So that's that's maybe the biggest challenge that, that we face. But also we see that the competition is it has become much tougher. We compete with in practice with the whole whole world, and we need to be really tough on on, on the uh, quality side to provide content which which is a well world class content. So so that is also a challenge we need to. I suppose I'm interested in whether uh, at NRK Satmi you feel a responsibility or a, or a, a mission to educate the wider Norwegian public as well about Sami people and the culture and the language. Yes, I I, I do. We we often talk about uh, the need for building bridges be, between the Sami population and the majority population in in Norway, and I think that there is a is an increasing need that uh, bridge. Many Samis uh, move to to the cities uh, where they are in great minority, and they depend on on the majority has uh, an understanding of of their culture and and their needs, and it. it 
addition, we, we also see that there are, is an increasing conflict between uh, the majority population and parts of the Sami population uh, linked to the climate crisis and, and the uh, development of, of uh, green energy, which needs lands from which is used to reindeer herding. Hence, we see that there is, is a need for a greater understanding among the majority for, for the complexes that uh, arises with those conflicts. NRK Satmi demonstrates all three pillars. The podcasts are a key educational tool for language and culture, but they're also entertaining and informative. It is this final pillar, to inform, which is perhaps the most critical. Radio, in its long-held capacity to reach such a large percentage of the population, can foster an informed citizenry. To explore this subject in more detail, we finish in the Caribbean, in Barbados. Sure, my name is Anthony Green. I'm the general manager at Starcom Network Incorporated. We have four radio stations covering four different radio formats and essentially broadly catering for the diverse needs of Barbadian audiences, wherever they are in the world. These stations, and I suppose that's, that's where, for us, radio is powerful and we emphasize on network because even though we have four different formats, we focus quite a bit on the delivery of news and those news formats, those news bulletins are carried for the most part on every station. So despite the different formats, that information is received really well on all four stations and it it makes our news extremely popular. And we've come to realize that our audiences rely on it quite a bit. Radio everywhere in the world is a really important medium when it comes to disseminating information. And I'm just wondering what role it plays in Barbados. How important is radio for audiences to receive that information? It's very important. There's a heavy reliance on our radio stations to verify information, for example. And and that's been the, the case for quite a bit. I mean, social media makes that fairly relevant now <laughs> because there's so much information that you get on social media. Anyone can break news, say what's happening. But Starcom Network News has, has, has become a, a reliable brand, you know. So it, is it being said on our stations? <laughs> Do we have the story? People still want to hear that we have it. And that makes it very critical in, in terms then of how we treat the information that's out there, especially with the focus on misinformation and, and disinformation. So we then always had that role of verification, but it's even more critical now to make sure that you you share with people the information that they need, yes, but accuracy is something that is in focus and it is, it's something that people realize, yes, the, the, the media plays a key role in terms of delivering accurate information, given the age of social media that we are in now. Everyone can share information, but the skill set as it relates to information gathering, validating, analyzing, involving subject matter experts, credible sources, those are skill sets that separate what we do from just the general ability to share opinion and information. And it creates that relationship between us and the listener in terms of, yes, well, dependability and trust are values that that we project. And that's why people feel as though they can depend on what we have to offer in radio. So what it sounds like is, you know, as a result of this new 
information digital ecosystem, a, a space where anyone and everyone can have an audience, that that's really ramped up the pressure on, on broadcasters. There's a need to verify a lot more. Um, and that also is, is quite challenging because people can put anything on the internet and say anything. And that puts our role to be able to filter information quite challenging at times, but it's something that, that needs to be done. And, and why? Because it can be detrimental. We had a situation in Barbados, for example, where there was a lady who had a predator at her home. And she had the presence of mind to track this predator down. And when she saw the person that looked like the predator, she took a photograph and posted it online because she wanted other people to be aware that this was happening. And she figured she was helping. Now, the traditional media houses would have to make sure that that photo is very fine. And our channels for doing so um, is, is very often the way we work with the police to be able to release and approve that information before then we can say uh, that this particular person is needed for this reason. Do you know that the person who was posted online was actually not the predator? But by the time that was realized, the police had interviewed him. His photograph would have been all over the online platforms. He would have been exposed to ridicule. And so the, the person who posted was at least gracious enough to offer a public apology. But we then see how those lack of, of checks and balances can cause embarrassment to people. Um, at the same time, I have to say to you that there is a way that the technology helps because information gathering is a part of what we do. So because people are able to participate by sharing information, it assists in information gathering, and it also insists in feedback, gauging opinion, um, but then we still have to ensure that we take that information through a particular process internally to ensure that what we put out is sound and we can back it up as it relates to the values that we stand for. When we look at digital transformation, where are you at when it comes to looking at the digital space and seeing it as a vehicle to relaying uh, news and information? Where are you at on in your particular journey on that? We've accepted, first of all, that it's important for us to be in that space. It's where people are. And we are in the business of reaching audiences wherever they are. I don't think that it will benefit us to see the digital space as, as, as competition or as something that we need to go up against, you know, so radio versus digital, or, you know, I think radio has accepted and, and, and needs to accept that it belongs in the space. It's amazing how radio has been able to adapt over many years to various technology. Radio embraces technology and has been able to do so in an amazing way, perhaps in a, in a way that, that many other things have not been able to, to do so. In a region so vulnerable to natural disasters, 
Information through radio carries an added weight. Its role as a lifeline, providing critical life-saving news and updates, is more relevant than ever. And while we're now used to emergency alerts on mobile devices as a way of warning, Anthony says it was a different type of emergency alert back in 1955. Radio at that time used to go off the air um, just after 11 o'clock. And it's quite funny because there are jokes being told about when there was courting being done among the young people. And when the radio freedom box goes off, the partner would know that he needs to leave the house <laughs> back in those days. And when Hurricane Janet came, the government actually relying on Radio Fusion to come on air at two o'clock in the morning to alert people of the pending disaster. Now, people had the habit of leaving the box on so that in the morning the sound will come on. So they didn't turn off the box. So because of that alert, and we talk about alerts now, right? But because of that alert, many people across Barbados were able to be aware of the pending danger of Hurricane Janet. And that is said to have saved lives. What is evident from the experiences in Australia, Barbados and Norway is how the fundamental missions of radio to inform, to educate and to entertain remain as necessary as ever. Yet the circumstances and environment under which those missions were established in the first place a century ago were very different. But these themes are universal and so while radio changes, while the content and delivery form changes, the fundamental purpose does not. Digital products are now integral for youth radio to entertain. Podcasts tackling taboo subjects are important to educate new and existing audiences. And providing audiences with accurate and trustworthy information is pivotal in this digital age. I think the theme uh, that UNESCO has chosen for World Radio Day is just brilliant. In that hundred years, radio has been challenged by the changing technological environment. Technology continues to evolve, but radio somehow lands on its feet and and is able to embrace technology in a, in a, in a wonderful way so people keep declaring the death of radio and, and radio keeps being resurrected over and over and over and over again it's the power of voice Starcom network is going to be celebrating 90 years this year so radio fusion first came to barbados through Starcom network so we are part of that history and we've accepted our history, and our history is beautiful. The memories that people recall of radio is powerful. Thank you very much to all those who appeared on this podcast, Edita Kudlachova, Sonia Gill and Christian Porter, as well as Anthony Green, Lochi Makara and Johan Elo Caldo. For more World Radio Day content, head to our website, publicmediaalliance.org. You'll be able to find a special statement signed by PMA on the right to freedom of opinion and expression, as well as the right to receive and impart information and ideas through any media, regardless of frontiers. Thanks to Jamie Hitahana in producing this episode, as well as Rachel Still, Lucas Thompson and Tom Brazier for the music. If you missed the previous episode on the obligations public media has to Indigenous peoples, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. We'll be back with a new episode next month. Thanks for listening. <laughs>